is Women Who Rock, a podcast promoting female musicians and artists. Today, I'm joined by Claire Hennessy. She is a playwright and a singer-songwriter from Sydney. Claire, thanks for joining me at 2SER. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about our chat today because you are not exclusively a musician. Mm. You studied at NIDA and you have a degree in playwriting. Yeah. And so... I guess you're really a storyteller and I'm really interested today to find out about the approach of telling stories through different mediums. So when you, I guess I wanted to get into your mindset of if you have a particular story that you want to convey Mm. and you want to do that through a play, Mm. a large work, or through a song, what are, I guess, the different approaches and maybe what would justify wanting to tell one story in one particular medium? Yeah, it's it's a really, I mean, I think about or try to understand that difference myself too a lot because I guess a lot of it is embedded in, inside the chronology of how I arrived at the two mediums. I mean, I started, I guess, uh, publicly working as a playwright way before working as uh, a songwriter, I guess. So... It was very much my comfort zone to be uh, behind behind the metaphorical camera, I suppose, okay. rather than, or I guess backstage rather than on stage. And I think that was because writing for me started very much as like an intellectual exercise. It was a lot more objective. It was about looking at ideas and analysing things in terms of multiple factors and, and all of the components, I think, that made up a singular event or a story. Um, and that's one wonderful thing I think about plays in particular. You just personify them in different characters and you can kind of watch ideas explode in a very complex way. Whereas songwriting obviously is kind of the complete inverse of that. It's zoning in on a really particular subjective experience and you don't really get any other um, competing ideas. And I really only arrived at that in a very personal way. Like it wasn't my intention initially that I would ever share my songwriting with people because it was so personal and because it wasn't it, it was a story in a in a different way like it didn't feel as balanced as maybe presenting an argument or an idea on stage in a, in a more yeah a more complex way but it turned out you know it was so healing for me to do that that I started to understand it it was just a different perspective and that has its own value in terms of storytelling mm. And sometimes you're right, like there are ideas where I'm like, oh, you know, that's an idea that I certainly couldn't really approach or wouldn't feel wouldn't feel like it suited approaching in a song. It, it feels more like an, an idea that I want to attack intellectually and maybe put into a story. Yes, I'm lucky I get to do both, I guess. Right. I think it's the term, yeah, it's interesting that you use sort of intellectual in terms of uh, theatre. And is it a contrast with your songwriting where it's more of a... I guess it's more of like an emotion or a visceral totally thing rather than yes. an intellectual construct. I think in order to make and write a song, I have to almost completely detach that part of my brain that is analytical or 
critical, I guess, to at least start the process. I, I like to basically just improvise something that could go for 10, 15 minutes, depending on whatever it is. And it's completely just an exorcism of whatever that emotional state is. And of course, you listen back to it, it doesn't sound good, like maybe 80% of it will go out the window. But it, in order to kind of find the guts of it, you just can't, well, I can't be um, operating the two sides of my brain at the same time. It just would just, it would stop. It's It's too, I think stifling to have that critical voice happening at the same time with something like songwriting okay i have no experience in writing plays yeah you it almost sounds like a science the way that you describe <laughs> it as yeah. you're you're approaching it really analytically rather than viscerally have you ever done a sudoku not really yeah well i guess i'm I the can... worst <laughs> yeah, not the worst no i mean i think i think it's probably cl- i know what you mean like it it's it's like a Sudoku or a crossword, I mean, in the sense that you're aware that it's the discrete thing that you're looking at in terms of this part of dialogue has to make sense in and of itself. But like a, a, a row of Sudoku or a, a, an individual square on that Sudoku map, I don't know if that's what it's called, but that is going to affect everything else inside that grid. And in the same way, every you have to be so economical with every single piece that you put inside that puzzle basically of the play as well and it's just it's kind of like a patience or you have to have a lot of faith I guess like with completing a Sudoku or a crossword that you know like there has to be a place for everything Mm. you just have to be patient enough that it will become apparent what those places are but it is you kind of like constantly have to be zooming in and out between small picture big picture and yeah I guess you do I at least have to be kind of very analytical when you move between those spaces. I suspect that that is an excellent analogy for people who do a lot of Sudoku. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I don't want to also give the impression that I do a lot of Sudokus. Okay. I, think, <laughs> I mean, I maybe have completed three Sudokus in my life and have not completed many, many, many Sudokus okay. in my life. <laughs> but it's the same with plays. Like sometimes you start, and songs I suppose too, but you embark on it and sometimes you can't complete it yet. You don't know what that final piece of information or the, the final part is, and it might take ages, or you might never do it. But you kind of have to be okay with that as well when you start, I think. But when you're zooming, as you said, you're zooming in and out, mm. you're thinking analytically about how the pieces fit together, mm. are there like bursts and flashes of creativity where you enter into a state that's sort of closer to what you describe for songwriting? I feel like initially the, the first stage of writing a play is very intuitive like that and part of the joy of it is like just trusting that it's got like a compass that your heart or I suppose the the more um, subconscious part of you really knows and you won't know that I don't think until you get to the end in many ways what the kind of true north of that play might be so Mm -hmm. it's hugely intuitive In, in a way it's you're constantly I think swapping between those bursts of just being completely intuitive versus being really analytical because it loses its heart I think if you don't have just the opportunity for things to randomly come up and be like okay a bear needs to be in this play I don't know why yet but like (laughs) it probably does let's figure out what happens with it and it keeps the the spontaneity I think if you get bored with it you just will abandon it too so you're doing both of these things in parallel kind of yeah is it hard to jump 
I really like it. Okay. I think it's it's I mean, it depends on the month, I guess, or depending on what's the most urgent deadline, but if I have it's like exercising different parts like two hands of the same body like I don't think of them as necessarily that separate to each other it's just you can use one arm and that arm gets a bit tired so use the other one and it just you know you can sometimes use both but again they get kind of tired if you don't take breaks so it's it's good it's really just like gives the other part of my brain a bit of like room to breathe and reset so I like it thus far. Okay. <laughs> I also have, I guess, a like more logistics question mm. about publishing mm. plays. Because mm-hmm. I saw on your website that you do have a completed work. Mm-hmm. How does, yeah, how does it work in, in terms of like the publishing side? Mm. Do you have this completed work that you then pitch to theatre companies or can you just t- give us a bit of an uh, overview of that process so how it moves from being something that's completed to something that like is a tangible sure i mean i guess we sort of i understand the music publishing better hmm. you know you do it you go to a studio you record yeah. it's a piece of work you put it on Bandcamp, spotify or whatever yeah. but that kind of process i don't really understand yeah from, for four plays it's it's funny it's a little bit until just recently when I did have this play published it was the same for me I was a little bit mystified about how that happened because you have whether or not a play has been published doesn't necessarily dictate whether or not that play gets produced and and performed so in many ways especially when you're emerging and like I've been trying to make as much work as possible it's it's funny, obviously publishing sort of is one of the main goals because there's a revenue stream there and the potentiality for it to then have another life after you have finished with it. But in many ways, like the focus for me has so much been just getting it on stage and you don't need to involve publishers really at all at that process. It's really, I mean, the organisation that I have published this one digitally through have just open calls for example. So, I mean, I became aware of that and I was like, oh, well, I won't touch that play. I don't think I won't really want to make any changes. So it might be ready to publish. Um, So I submitted it to them in the hopes that they'd want to publish it. And they did, which was great. And it was oddly really easy and transparent in that sense. But that's only a digital release. So again, I have that whole, it's still really mystifying, I guess, how you take it from that to being a tangible Mm. book but I think there are probably and I don't know all of them which is also bad but there are a couple of big publishing companies that will focus on plays and I imagine if you have an agent like a literary agent they will be the ones that sort of uh, broker those those relationships with those publishing companies and maybe they know a bit more about how that is but I, I kind of don't know past that in describing that, it almost made me think that it's maybe almost like sheet music in the 1920s <laughs> because it's not – you're not releasing a performance of the play to the no. world. You're releasing the, the essence you're of exactly the play. You're exactly right. The sheet, or the blueprint of it really mm. is how I like to think of it. It's, it's – you're exactly right. And, and it's strange because as a playwright, when you're actually bringing it to life, you're so involved – in that first production, in all of the other elements, in the actual finished work, it's it is really bizarre then 
to kind of just move back and be like, oh, it's just a, it's just the blueprint now. Let's try and sell that to somebody. Mm. Um, and it's oddly detached to kind of be like, okay, other people will just have complete control over what – that makes me sound like such a control freak. <laughs> <laughs> other people will have control over it. They're kind of like covering it. Yeah, exactly. No, you're exactly their spin, right. Their own kind of interpretation. Yeah, and it's fun in the same way I imagine as writing sheet music must be because you have to give the right amount of information for that release to be or the release into the world to feel comfortable but enough space that obviously other creatives can come in and, and build and do their job. Mm. And that's what I actually really like about it is that you can – the art is also in what you don't say as much as what you do leave is prescriptive for it. But, yeah, it's very – I'll let you know when I know about publishing. Okay. I'll get back to get you. Get back to me. says that you are ensnared by the world of the less traditional. Mm. I think that describes me pretty well as well. Yeah. What non-traditional genres do you really dig? I guess maybe less than, well, not specifically genres, but I think just introducing things that maybe don't feel like they belong inside an idea or a, a suite of sounds is really interesting in that, I think it just is a reminder in a way that things can sound however the fuck they need to sound or however you want them to sound. It's, it's, I think things that are really like, I'm, I'm thinking of, have you heard of Woodkid? No. He's a musician who I think has done a lot of electronic work, but it's also intensely dramatic and has heaps of really almost operatic orchestral arrangements. And there's something so satisfying about that. What I would assume stereotypically might be considered quite a jarring combination, but it's really exciting when those things are just kind of like, okay, they're coexisting in the same space. Why not? So it could be more of an instrumentation rather than... Yeah, more so instrumentation, I think, than particular genres. What about you? What's like, how do you feel that resonates with you? I like to listen to a lot of very old music. Ah, <laughs> what are we talking here? Like, I love blues music. Cool. I like to listen to blues music from the 1920s and 1930s. Mm. I also enjoy the concept of blues music played through non-traditional instruments. Oh. Yeah. Okay, like... Yeah, so I guess as an example, there's a track. I was listening to a podcast, actually a 2SCR podcast mm. with Dr. Carl. Dr. Carl. He's been in this building. Are you kidding? Not this room because this is a very new studio. But I would probably get overwhelmed if he'd been okay, in this sure. studio. Okay, so sure. Well, we can go good. and visit the downstairs one later. Um, but he said that his like alarm clock was a track by Frank Zappa and it's called Directly From My Heart To You. And it's sort of this like swinging blues cool. with this two-minute violin solo. Yeah, see, that's amazing. Never heard this. I'll but send I, it to you. Yeah. It's um and it, I don't know it's like it is really quite jarring, and he had that as his alarm clock for years 
every morning. That's what he woke up to. This wow. like crazy violin blues solo. I love that. Yeah. That it reminds me of this song by Baths, which is another like electronic. I don't know. I guess electronic band, but they have this song called Aminult, and it used to be my alarm clock. And it's just this like nice kind of electronic, sort of quite um, sweet uh, opening. But then a child just starts speaking in this very it's just really weird but for some reason i was like yeah i'll make that my alarm yeah <laughs> a child talking about animals animals <laughs> yeah, i was like okay but it's yeah i guess like i would love to hear that song because that's totally the vibe mm. just things that feel like they shouldn't belong just having a great old time yeah <laughs> let's read into that that's as a person that's how I feel. <laughs> music 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 let's hear one of your tracks let's do it so this is the most recent single mm. famine feast mm-hmm. let's hear that now
track Famine Feast by Clay Hennessy. We were talking a bit about the instrumentation or I guess wanting to explore different instrumentation. Mm. Let's have a bit of a chat about that track. Mm. I was hearing definitely there's a slide guitar. Yeah. But I was also hearing what I thought was a guitar played through and like an organ simulator pedal. Oh. Is that way off or <laughs> it's not no it's not way off at all. There was actually there were two guitars, two acoustic guitars. One was a steel string. Oh, no, one was a steel guitar. Like a resonator kind yes. of thing. Yes, and yeah. one was just a standard acoustic, pickup acoustic. And one of them was slightly detuned, I realised, as we were doing production on it. And I kind of loved it. So I was like, okay, I don't mind that it adds that, which might describe that slightly detuned element of going through an organ or something. But... I mean, I think that's it. Okay. I feel as though we have a very similar philosophy because <laughs> I can dig that as well. Yeah. You realised it was slightly de- – you mean like tuned down a little bit? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was oh, slightly off, I guess. But not – okay, but not like a step, just yes. a, a weird amount. Yeah, just something about like the metal probably decided to, to go funny places with the temperature, something like yeah, exactly sure. that you wouldn't really pick up on on the day, but rather just keep it and – like it's a song about being a bit messy so i was kind of like okay we sure. can keep that in there for some character why not plays into the theme yes yeah. exactly we need to talk about laura marling we do we were having a bit of a chat as we listened to the song yeah. and we also so laura marling is definitely a big influence for you huge tell me about how much you love her podcast her podcast i'm so glad you've brought this up i'm so glad that we can chat about it because as I said I try and tell everybody to listen to it it's I just and what we were saying before which I think is worth mentioning is she is she's such a prolific musician and she's so um she's just had such an expansive uh career in such like a relatively short amount of time which is part of why I love listening to her but when she gets in the other seat as the interviewer you can just hear this um She's just got such an endearing presence, I guess, as a as a host. Um, which, yeah, we were saying she sounds a bit nervous. You just want to be like, Laura, no, yeah. you're an angel. What are you talking <laughs> about? But she she clearly just has so much respect for, uh, I guess, women who are working out in in the careers they are 
in what is such a male-dominated world. I guess we should talk about the premise a little bit. Yeah. So I guess the idea is that, for me, it was sort of posing a question that, you know, the last 60 years of popular music have been, it's been produced in a very masculine, heavy environment. Yes, yes. What would happen if that was flipped? Yes. It's sort of the questions that she poses. Completely. And it's such an interesting question, isn't it? Because it, it, it begs the... Do we define music in a gendered way? Like, can you can you distill creativity as something that's inherently masculine or feminine? I mean, like, we all probably have different opinions about that. But I love that she just dove straight into and around that. Like, that's such an interesting point of inqu- of inquiry, I guess. And I'm so glad she did it. Um, and even just being able to hear voices that, you know for representation's sake we don't hear all that that often or there's less visibility of women working in particular like what i like about it is she didn't just talk to female artists who are the face of their music she talked to engineers and just a lot of different people a lot of different women hmm. i feel as though she, she was trying to get into the <laughs> kind of i guess the ethos of the studio environment yes because it is a weird it's so foreign place yeah it's, I mean, I, I don't have heaps of experience in the studio environment, but I I'm, will ask you, in in the rehearsal room, in the play building environment, it feels oddly secretive about what exactly happens and who does what and the, the hierarchies and the secret little rooms you all go into and do X, Y, Z. Is it sort of similar in the studio environment? Um. I think that the politics depends on who you're working with. Mm. Yeah. I just think it's a very compressed environment because mm. there, I mean, there are levels. Mm. You could be a band that has a studio that has a million dollar budget and you go to the studio for three months mm. and you just hang out and whatever happens after the end of three months is what happens and they yeah. pay a lot of money to do that. That has not been my experience. <laughs> it's been sort yeah. of, you know, we have a very tight budget. The people we've worked with have been great, mm. but it's a very kind of compressed environment. Mm. Particular, I mean, everything that I've done is sort of, we've already written the songs. Yeah. We need to go in and record. We have a job to do. So it's just very different to the rehearsal room. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine. And definitely, I yeah, I mean, she definitely has a point that over the last 60 years, mm. it has been, a, you know, a man behind the desk. Yeah, completely. So. And how does that, if it's a space where artists have to come in and be quite vulnerable, how does the culture of whom, whomever is in charge dictate what that space is? I mean, some people might really work well against a space where they feel like they're not completely um, free to be, you know, unguarded. Some people might really like that, some might not, but it's... Yeah, it would just, I can imagine how um, strange it would be to consider something that had always been considered normal as a as just one way of doing things. Like, I can imagine people being like, what do you mean? Like, why would you even bother? Mm. <laughs> it's like, you don't even know what the other possibilities could be. Yeah, well, I mean, hopefully things will change and we'll get to find out. And just see. I mean, who knows? Who knows? But mm. listen to the podcast. Sure. It's called Reversal, Reversal the Muse. Muse. You should definitely check it out. It's great. <laughs> and I love something wild in my
Freshly printed list of seven topics where I get you to choose one and tell us something about it. The topics are musical equipment, recording equipment, mm. poetry, death, punk rock, Patti Smith, and politics. So, Claire, can yeah. you please tell me a thing? I am going to tell you a thing about politics. Okay. As somebody who feels very self conscious about speaking politically, what I'm finding, and I don't, I'd be interested to, as a creative person, if you feel this too, given that like so many pressing issues are becoming bipartisan or becoming like political fodder, I'm finding it interesting as an artist figuring out how to work art into some very, or like how I can use my skill set to do with very politically challenging times, right? Like global warming, for example, which I think is the main thing that um, really incited me to become more politically educated. Like I'm just thinking about it so much at the moment and obviously since the election, trying to figure out like how do I fit into what's going on? Because it can be sometimes like super paralyzing, this idea of just overwhelming insurmountable things happening in our society to so many people. Um, and then you just want to make music and <laughs> help people. Um, so I don't know if that's really telling you a thing about politics, but I guess that's where I'm feeling. That's how I'm feeling about it at the moment. I actually, so yeah, I was in London a couple of months ago. Mm. It was a bit of a whirlwind tour. Mm. I only had mm, maybe two or three days off. Mm. Oh my gosh. And I tried to see as many gigs as I could. Yeah. And I think I saw maybe five, probably four or five singer-songwriters yeah. who'd written a song about Brexit. Right. So... It's a thing. It's I a mean, thing. It, so you feel as though you are a bit cautious about being like too overbearing and brazen, or I think so. Like I, I definitely wouldn't want to be too dogmatic about about any issue, really, because I think that when you hear someone who's just sort of telling you what to think, I think it's a really natural reaction to just want to be like, no, don't tell me what to think, rather than hearing actually what are probably super valid arguments. So, I mean, that's the, the kind of nice thing about playwriting is that you can embed it in something that's a little bit less politicised in a way. You just make it about people and it's a bit easier to kind of empathise with the real life of something. But I still don't really know how to engage with it as a songwriter yet. Okay. Still it out. I guess I come from the background of being a scientist. Mm. So my approach to political arguments is evidence and yes. evidence-based arguments. Although that doesn't necessarily great make for a great song about <laughs> <Evidence> climate change. Arguments. <laughs> <laughs> you try singing about a list of statistics about climate change, but I'm not sure <laughs> how engaging song? it will be. <laughs> well, I mean, there's that song, I've been everywhere, man. He just lists all the places. Yeah, okay. Maybe you could. your next song could be just a list of impending cataclysmic <laughs> events. That would be great. <laughs> and the same delivery, like really fast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the same sort of like jovial, like ding, yeah, ding, yeah. ding, 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 <laughs> ding. Just to offset the doom and gloom a little bit. Yeah, that'll be a treat. Stay tuned. I'll work on that. Okay, sure. I look forward <laughs> to it. Claire, thanks so much. Thanks for having for me. 
coming on for a chat. It's been really nice. Yeah, and also, awesome. it's been very eye-opening for me. Really? To, well, I've never really spoken to a playwright in my life before. So well, there you go. There's a first for everything. I hope I didn't leave a sour taste. No. About <laughs> the workings of a playwright. But, yeah, thanks for letting me talk about it. It's been good. <laughs> <laughs> it's been really good. Thank you. I really have loved being here. Rock is proudly produced in the Sydney studios of 2SER 107.3.